0: Hi there, thanks for joining us for this week's High Performance Podcast. If you've not heard the pod before, welcome along. It's all about myself and Professor Damien Hughes having conversations with people who have achieved incredible things with simply one aim, for you to learn the lessons from their life so you can apply it to your life. And hopefully along the way, all of us will get lifted up and all of us will have the opportunity to live a more high-performance life. Damien and I love having the conversations. We both learn as much as you every time we speak to our guests, and this week's guest is an absolute hero for so many
1: reasons. Here's what you can expect. We all have the ability to choose, and we all have, it's linked closely with your attitude and how you go about your day-to-day stuff, but we always have the ability to, to choose how we attack things, how we go about things, and we have to remind ourselves of that from time to time especially in those those tough situations and and there's something I use when I'm when I'm really struggling at, and I, and I call it everybody's got a pack of playing cards and there's four aces in it well I always think you've got an ace in your pocket no matter what happens and you can play that ace at any time and and that ace you can give to people and basically attitude care and enjoyment and if at any moment you're struggling a little bit play that ace card remind yourself you have the choice remind yourself You care about yourself and the people you're working with and put a smile on your face. And very, very quickly, you can turn it around. Hiring for your
2: small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's
0: like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. I really can't wait for you to hear this week's episode. Don't forget, you can find us on Instagram, just find at High Performance. You can also follow Damien at Liquid Thinker. And I'd love you as well just to rate and review the podcast because it makes such a difference to us. Um, It means we can reach more people than ever before and it just helps to spread the word about the High Performance podcast. And while I mention that, a huge thank you this week to everybody for shouting about the pod, for sharing it on their social media channels, to Mr. BPE, who got in touch saying, listening to Eddie Jones on the High Performance Podcast, his quote, kids need to be taught and not coached. I love this. I think it applies in more subjects at school than just PE. Are kids pushed towards an endpoint as quickly as possible in order to be better than others, he asks. Well, it's time to meet this week's High Performance Podcast guest. Sit back, enjoy and get ready to learn. Hi there, you're listening to High Performance, where we delve into the minds of some of the most successful artists, visionaries, entrepreneurs and sports stars on the planet with one aim, to unlock the things they've learned, explore the secrets to their success so that you too can attack a high performance life. Professor Damien Hughes, expert in high achieving team cultures, is with me as ever. And today's guest is someone that everyone knows and respects, Damien, but you actually know him better
2: than most. Yeah, I do, Jake. I'm really thrilled to uh, to have today's guest on. I've known him. Since he was a little boy, I've known his, um, his mum. So I followed his journey from afar um, and then got to know him. And I'll tell you two quick anecdotes about this guy that sum him up really nicely. In 2010, I was working with a team in his sport and uh, we ended up beating his team at, uh, in a final at Wembley. And when I went over to speak to him, he was gracious, humble and dignified. Then two years later, his team beat the team I was working with in a final And when he came over, he was gracious, humble and dignified. So if we talk about consistency of character, and that's a big trait we've spoken about on the podcast series, Jake, this guy is the absolute embodiment of it to my mind.
0: Well, let's get on with it then, because today we talked to a genuine leader. The fact he's one of the most successful rugby league players ever is impressive. But how he got there is what you need to hear. How he kept his motivation to captain a side to three successive Super League titles. How he created, then helped to lead a team culture... The importance of reinvention, the risks of going stale and as we saw in late 2020 when he raised millions for his close friend Rob Burrow, how you can live a life where your actions really do speak louder than your words. It's a pleasure to welcome to the podcast the Leeds Rhinos Director of Rugby, Kevin Sinfield, MBE. Kevin, nice to have you with us.
1: Yeah, thanks guys. Thanks for having me on. I'm a big fan of the show, so it's to you, John.
0: Great. Well, then you'll know what the first question is. What is high performance?
1: Yeah, I've, I've heard this answered a few different ways and um, I think it probably depends on who you are and, and where you are in your sport but I think for where I am at this moment in time it, it's certainly getting the best out of yourself and especially the people around you whilst also constantly striving for improvements and then I think within that it's having the courage to take some risks, I think all people who perform at that level need to take some risks at, at, at different times.
0: The problem with taking risks, though, is that they're scary. They often come with the the chance of failure, and I think for a lot of people that listen to this podcast, Kevin, getting past the risk of the failure is one of the biggest stumbling
1: blocks. When did you learn to be able to push past that? Uh, probably early on in in sort of my rugby career. I got I got made captain at twenty two of the Leeds Rhinos, and you know you found out pretty quickly that the club hadn't won many trophies. Uh, we are not won a championship for 32 years or 31 years when I got the job and I realized pretty quickly if we wanted to change and we wanted to get the team on track and to be challenging for trophies again, there had to be some unpopular decisions made and some unpopular choices and within that, there certainly is, you know, at times putting yourself out there, showing your courage and just having the courage to fight through some of that some of that negativity, some of those older pros who'd been around a long time who could have quite easily ripped to pieces some of the things I was suggesting or some of the opinions I had but what you find is that it was probably the perfect time for us to implement some change and I was very very fortunate that our older senior players hadn't won many trophies so they were desperate to win and were willing to try anything so it was almost some great ingredients thrown into a a cauldron. and, And thankfully, although at the time, you know I was really concerned about how some things may land, as soon as you start to get one or two results, people jump on board with it. So can I ask you around that culture that you
2: created then, Kev? Because we have a lot of people listen to this podcast from a range of different backgrounds, whether they're teachers, medics, or amateur or professional sports people, or business. And they're all listening to find out what that secret sauce is around High-performing,
1: successful cultures. So, how would you define that? I'd start by saying it, it, it's not just one person's job. I think it's if you're part of a, an high-performing team, or, or, or you, you know, you work in an office, or you're, you're a fireman, you work part of the team. Whatever it is you do, there has to be a cause. There has to be a common goal that you all share. There has to be an element of sacrifice within there. There has to be an element of people being unselfish. But a lot of, when I look back on my, my, sort of my playing career and the changes that we made, it was almost, we had the perfect circumstances. We just needed some good people to implement them. And I'm going to keep using this quite a bit because it, 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 this is how I lived it. But I just feel so fortunate because the people I were around with were very like-minded and just wanted to win, but also wanted to win the right way. I had a lot of integrity about what they were trying to instill the way we wanted to go about some things and, and ultimately if you, if you pull culture apart in my own opinion it's it's the beliefs and behaviours that people have and show and when you unpick some of that again you end up right back at your standards what standards do you live by and without saying it we were happy to make, hold each other accountable in the right way but ultimately the driving force was always that the team came first and if that meant sometimes your nose was put out a joint you dealt with it and you got on with it and you took it in the right way and and ultimately, I suppose if I look back now and if you wanted a phrase of what that was, um, probably the standards you prepared to walk by are the standards you prepared to accept. And, you know, we knew if if there was something needed saying and, and, and we didn't address it, that it could fester and, and cause an issue down the line. But I absolutely uh, mean this. You know, I was captain of the side for 13 years, but I had some wonderful leaders around me that without them we wouldn't have got anywhere near what we did. They were so important to me, the support they gave me, but also at different times, for me to have the, the humility to say, you're better at this than me, or I think actually your voice here would go far, would resonate far further than what mine would. Uh, just having that appreciation, understanding of the people that were in it around me, then I was so fortunate. But that intrigues me, Kev, because, you had some people
2: that fitted a stereotype of being what you'd imagine a leader to be within a a very sort of macho sport like rugby league. You know, you had some big uh, guys that had loud voices and big characters to go with it. And yet I always perceived that you were more of a quiet leader, that you led through example. So how did you go about finding your place in a dressing room like that as a leader to set those
1: standards and be listened to and, and followed? Uh, well well, I think first of all actions speak louder than words so people want to see the behaviors they're the things that stand out more they're the things that carry far more weight than any dressing room team talk people want to see you live a certain way 24 7 and I suppose um, I was quite lucky at an early age at, at a couple of real uh, real poignant moments in my childhood that stand out you know and, and have stuck with me ever since but You've probably heard me say this before, Damien. You know, physically, I wasn't particularly gifted as a as an athlete, as a rugby player, but what I was prepared to do was make myself the most committed. And, and what came with that was a way you live your life. I mean, you can't just sw- switch a light on and expect to be a wonderful player. It doesn't just happen. So I committed everything I had to it. And a big part of that within that was, I'm in mean, a team sport and the balancing act between being self-sacrificing, but also making sure my body and my needs got what they needed so that I could perform my role in the team. So it it was a real balancing act, but I suppose the team, unbeknown to any of us, was put together with a completely different set of vitamins and minerals, if you like, and and we all know our own bodies. You have to have a bit of everything, and whether it was put together that way, um, I'm not so sure there was that much science behind it, but actually... We had a bit of everything in that team and um, it made it easier for me to be able to behave because, you know, you find your way. You find your way in a family, don't you? I had an older brother and older sister and and subconsciously you find your way to be able to get attention and be able to breathe and grow. And I think that's what you do in in a team sport.
0: I I think that uh, character is something that you create rather than inherit. So what were the things that happened in your childhood that you can relate to now that you think built the character that got you to the top of the rugby world?
1: Uh, yeah, really good question, Jay. Uh, there's two things. One wants to do with being a captain and the other wants to do with being me and the way I live my life. So in 1992, I was fortunate enough to play for Oldham Schools um, against Dewsbury and Batley in a curtain raiser at Wembley before a Challenge Cup final. Uh, the final was Wigan versus Castleford. And we played this game at Wembley. It started out, they kicked off. There'd be about 12,000 people in at Wembley at the time. But by the time our game was coming to a close, there'd be about 70,000 people packed in this old Wembley. We got a quick shower, took our seat in the stand to watch the main event. I remember being sat there looking around. I'm 11 year old and thinking, you can do this for a job. You can actually play rugby for a job and get paid for it. And at that moment it clicked and I thought, this is what I want to do. I want to play in front of these big crowds. I want to represent whichever team it was and, and win trophies. And I knew I had some talent, but I knew I didn't have an X factor. I didn't have a secret ingredient that a lot of kids have. And I decided to make my commitment. And I decided from that day on that I was going to throw everything at my rugby career. And if I never weren't good enough. If I got injured, if something went wrong, I was determined not to be a bloke who propped up a bar somewhere and said, coulda, woulda, shoulda. I wanted to get rid of all of that and go, I'm going to throw everything at this and I'll be able to live myself for the rest of my life if it do not work. But if it does, we're going to have some good times. The second one, and I get asked this quite a bit because it was captain at a professional club for 13 years and that's quite a long time when you think, you know, I had got given the job at 22 and, and seeing a whole host of different teams and environments within that. but. I sort of got made captain of a, a Lancashire team at under 10s. You're going to laugh at this, right? I played for Lancashire under 9s, and I'm a real proud Lancashire man, although I've represented a Yorkshire team for my whole professional career. But I represented Lancashire under 9s, and we were playing away at Hull. And I'd been playing rugby for a couple of years, and I remember getting on this coach, driving all the way to Hull. My mum and dad were proud as punch that little Kevin was playing for Lancashire. And I was a substitute that day, and I got on for the final two minutes. And we got, after the game, showered, got on the bus on the way back. And I remember thinking to myself, I've drove all the way up to Hull from Oldham on a bus. I played two minutes. My mum and dad are chuffed a bit, but I'm not happy. This isn't enough for me. So next year, when this Lancashire team's picked, I'm going to be in it. I'm going to make sure I play and I start. So the following year, we go for a Lancashire trial. And um, you get split up into... into different teams and you put with players from all different amateur clubs, community clubs now they're called, um, from around the northwest or around the Lancashire region. And I remember looking at my team thinking, I'm going to struggle today. I'm going to struggle to stand out and get in this side unless I can get the best out of these around me. So I spent the next 45 minutes of this trial encouraging, pushing, driving, motivating every single one of these players in my team and we smashed everybody on this trial. I get picked and I get made captain. And I'm sure I got made captain because of how I spoke to these kids at 10-year-old right back in 1990, 1991. From then on, every team I played in, at some stage, I got made captain of. And I reckon, you know, when when I roll back my career, when people look for leaders, a lot of the time they go to what they know or they go to somebody who was previously had that type of role. And I reckon... Just from being really, really fortunate, right place at right time, at, at different stages in my career, you get made captain because you've done it before and you've done an half a decent job. And so if you can see those two things, I'm, I'm 10 on the captaincy one. I'm 11 at playing at Wembley. Just had such an impact on my childhood. And actually, I have still have a massive impact on me now. They happened and I look back and think, wow, Um Without those two experiences, would I be the bloke I am today? The answer would be probably not. To have that
2: realization at such a young age is uh, is one thing, but then secondly, to have the courage to actually implement it is another. Like I'll give you an anecdote, and I told Jake this off air that somebody that we both know told me a great story about you around that time when you were playing for Lancashire. That he said, like one night you all went out um, to the cinema. And he said, and everyone sort of, like as young kids do, all piled in on the uh, on the sweets and the, f- and the fizzy drinks. And he said, and you turned up with a bag full of fruit that you'd already chopped at home. So you weren't tempted by the sweets. And the person that told it me was saying it in absolute awe that you had that courage to stand apart from the group, even at a really young age where following the pack would have been easier to do it. So where does that come from, that that strength of character, what's your background like that developed it?
1: Yeah, uh, a good good question. I I think probably growing up in a typical working class Oldham family, it certainly had a huge effect on me. I I shared a bedroom with my older brother, Ian, till I was 15, he's three years older than me. I've got an older sister who's five and a half years older. Um, Certainly they had a huge effect on my character. I think being the youngest, I, we didn't go without anything, but it weren't always the thing you would have, you know, when some of my mates at school were in Adidas and Nike, then you know, I was in different brands. And, and you got that, you understood it. My mum and dad did absolutely everything they could. You know, and I'm so proud of my upbringing. It was it was a really, really good childhood. But I signed a professional at 13, Damon, and when you sign, professional that young and it's very very different now because there's scholarships and there's academies and, but back then you know you started getting paid at 13 and straight away you start to feel the pressure and the scrutiny and I think being able to handle that and deal with it from being 13 to understand what it was like to play for Rhinos you know I remember Dave was a 16 year old for the first team to understand so early on in my career at different points that you had to survive and find a way to survive and find a way of dealing with things and understand that, you know, certainly you didn't have all the answers and, but you, and at times you found out the hard way, but it, it was, I, I do it. And I'm going to come back to it again. I feel so lucky and fortunate because some of the experiences I've had at such an early age, almost in front of people who were my age or a year above or two years above just gave me enough of it, an insight each time just to nudge me on a bit further. Uh, with Damien often you know he talks about success leaving clues
0: he talks about people using evidence in front of them to realise that they're doing the right thing it strikes me that it was so important for you at really a young age to make these big decisions and to see that they worked it was almost like maybe you felt like you knew a secret at that point that other people didn't that you had a way of having an impact in any situation
1: yeah, but Possibly yeah I think looking back now um, you know I'm certainly a pleaser so if you start out down a path and you're getting patted on the back for it as a kid you carry on don't you and i suppose my behavior was being rewarded by being named in different rep teams being made captain of different rep teams and it seemed to be working so you you stick with it i've always trained hard it was something that you know, i loved i love training so actually setting standards in training and behaving the right way was never an issue um the stuff off the field was never particularly an issue for me. It was it was never hard to go out with my mates back home uh, on a Friday and Saturday night and not have a drink. You know, they just accepted it. They'd they known me do that since forever. And then, the most difficult part of my professional career was, was joining Leeds in those first couple of years of you trying to make those friendships within a team that very much has um, a drinking culture. That became quite difficult at times, but... I think when you stand your ground and and you say no a number of times, people start to respect it and understand why.
0: Did you ever falter and fail? And uh, Matthew McConaughey described it as leaving crumbs. He said, don't leave crumbs. Did you ever leave crumbs and have to go and pick them up afterwards
1: at that point? No, I was I was always mega conscious. Always. I, I always felt on guard. I always felt... Even so, with camera phones now and the media and the way... The game changed over my career. Just was ultra aware. And and I knew the moments when I could let my eye down. And don't get me wrong, I absolutely did that. And I've made plenty of mistakes. I just made sure they weren't in front of the camera and and nobody got me on a camera phone. And I'm sure there's probably someone out there who says, yeah, I've got you here. I've got some dirt on you. Um, I'm like everybody else, you know, I'm not an angel. I get stuff wrong, I make mistakes. But um, I was mega conscious of it the whole time. And what that enabled me to do Certainly when you know we're in those environments where to put people in taxes, we to send them home, we to put an arm around people and say, come on, you've had enough, or we're in the wrong place here, let's get out of here, let's move on.
0: I think it, you know, it comes with responsibility, I think, at a young age. Mine was very different, but I was in my late teens when I landed a job on Children's BBC, and it was made really clear to us that you have a, a responsibility to represent Kids Deli in the UK. So there wasn't any drinking, there was no going to strip clubs, there was no smoking in a public place, there was no doing anything that didn't feel like a children's BBC kind of behaviour publicly. But I remember I'd go out and I wouldn't drink, but the following morning I'd wake up absolutely paranoid about having been out, what if I did something, did I say something to anyone? I'd lie in bed for, not necessarily hours, but probably an hour, replaying the very thing, all the conversations I had, all the people, and it created like a paranoia, but it was, but it was a safety net as well, you know. I'm kind of glad I had it because it just meant I didn't make any of those mistakes. I don't know whether you, you had at any time that anxiety maybe relating to that, which I certainly uh, did.
1: I, I reckon working in children's TV, it certainly would have been less forgiving than a rugby club and a rugby environment. So I, I probably was able to push the boundaries a bit more than what you were. I think, you know, absolutely, you'd have been dragged over the coals and massively scrutinised within our environment um, you know, I, I certainly had some flexibility with my with behaviour because I knew at, at any time I would never be the worst and it was also my responsibility to make sure that and a number of others that for that person who was the worst behaved he got looked after and cared for and put in a taxi or uh, you know, we, we'd leave one or two of the other ones who liked to stay out a bit longer, you know, that became their responsibility to ensure whoever it was got home properly and, and safely So can I ask you then, Kev, because having been around the setup where you were so well
2: respected, I know some of these characters that you're describing about that would have pushed the envelope or misbehaved or got themselves into trouble. And I was always intrigued to watch how you handled them. And I always think that when you spoke to them, they did listen. I saw them sort of like that facade, that front would drop away when you went and spoke to them. But I think it'd be helpful for people listening to this to understand how did you deal
1: with people that did step out of line within your environment where you were captain? I have a firm belief that your senior players run your club. Uh, and I find that now in my role that I've got around, the Reynolds, the senior players are so important because they set the standards. Uh, they make people accountable. And effectively, all the big decisions that they have such an influence uh, throughout the group that that they make sure things get done. Because we had such a difference of Leaders within the group, you know, at any one time, you know, it'd be really easy for me to whisper in one of our leaders' ear and say, "You be good cop, I'll be bad cop," or flick it around. And we both, we tagged team up a fair bit. And I think at times I had no doubt that you know, players rolled their eyes at me. Oh, look at you, Mr. Perfect. You never do anything wrong. And I knew that wasn't true. I knew I'd got lots wrong and made lots of mistakes. But ultimately, I hope they respected me enough to realise I was talking to them because I cared about them. And I cared about the team and I cared about keeping our environment secure. We were able to tell each other exactly what we thought of each other, but when we stepped over that white line, we were together as a unit and we'd cover each other's backsides no matter what had gone on off the pitch, so um, I still feel that now, I, you know, I've been approached a number of times since I finished playing about doing an autobiography and there's some stories that I just wouldn't tell. They're not for anybody else. They were for our dressing room at a certain time, and um, this stay within my own mind and whoever was involved, mind. Because ultimately, when we crossed that line, the fact that some of those stories, anecdotes, things that happened never got out, those players repaired us in how they performed on the field. And very, very quickly, if, you know if somebody was so far gone, so far out of line, they didn't last long. You know, they stood out like sore thumbs and the coaching team, your management team moved them on very quickly. So, you know, we were more than happy to to carry a bit of fat, if you like. But when it got to the stage when it were affecting your team harmony, then that's when the coach stepped in and, and understood his role in it. Have you listened to the Sia Kulisi episode that we did? No, I haven't, no. When you listen to that, he talks really well about
0: emotionally connecting with the players in the dressing room in a in a way that perhaps traditionally 15 or 20 years ago you wouldn't have seen in any professional sports. Because he said that when it really mattered on the pitch, the fact that you had had a hug with your teammate, you'd spoken about the difficulty in their marriage, you'd had a discussion about an ill child, you'd you'd gone forehead to forehead and told them that you'll do anything for them. He said... If you can get to that place with them, when you're out on the rugby field and it's backs against the wall and it really matters, you look across and you don't just see a teammate, you see a friend, you see someone you're emotionally connected to. Is that an
1: experience you can relate to from your time as a player? Very much so. What goes on off the field determines what happens on it. I have a couple of quotes that I say to myself all the time, but certainly as, as, a, as a player in terms of training and behaving, I always felt what you did away from Training was more important than anything you did at training. When nobody was watching, that was when you were really tested. But if you could deliver when nobody were watching, it was really easy to do it when thousands are watching. But certainly as a team, what went on behind closed a bit like a family, huh? I remember stepping out of line as a kid. I remember my brother doing it um, a fair bit more than I did. Uh, but it was all right for my mum and dad to be critical of him internally, but externally, they were so protective of him. And, and of me. And I think that's probably how our teams operated. Internally, we were all right being critical of each other, as long as it was respectful and in the right way. But actually, the outer world saw this completely unified group. And and I think those that are involved in that draw strength from it and trust in it. And it's absolutely transforms onto the field. You know, when you need somebody, when the bullets are, are being fired and it, you're 79 minutes in, you need a try, you're on your own goal line you're really struggling as a group everybody's gone that's when you rely on the things that they can't teach you in a in a classroom they can't teach you on a in a video session they can't teach you in a fitness session you either got it or you haven't and that comes from relationships that you built away so was
2: there one incident you can think of kev where that that trust that you developed away from the training ground manifested itself on a training
1: field that that could illustrate the point? There'd be a number of them, mean? I think, um, you know, I, I, I'll give one example. We we played in a playoff game back in 2012, um, and we were at Catalan away. And a guy you had uh, huge respect for, but had had a really checkered past, uh, was playing in our team and had, you know, a number of struggles throughout that year and we're backs against the wall we're over in France uh, we'd finished fifth that year we're trying to put our way through we've been just been pumped off Warrington in the Challenge Cup final trying to find a path through to, to get to a grand final make sure the season went a flop and you know, this, this one guy who's, who's gone through a fair bit just comes up with a game changing run for us and sets up a try and you know anybody anybody's a Leeds fan they'll know exactly what I'm talking about but just actually he wouldn't have been able to do that if it wasn't for the support or wasn't for the belief that the group had given him do you know what I mean there was so much going on away from here and, and almost like he had two families the family away from from Leeds Rhinos was he was struggling with a little bit but absolutely the Leeds Rhinos family was his rock and believed in him and understood that we were here to help him and care for him and he delivered There'll be people, Kevin, listening to this, who maybe
0: would struggle to believe they could have the mindset you had as an 11-year-old, but they would absolutely love to really understand the the specifics you did for creating cultures and dealing with people and emotionally connecting on a different level. You mentioned there's a couple of sort of phrases or quotes that you live with. Could you share with us the the sort of things that, that you say to yourself, the self-talk that you think has been crucial?
1: Yeah, uh, the... My favourite one is, uh, to become a champion, you have to be a champion at home first. Um, I use that all the time. Because actually, um, that's that probably how I lived my life from being 11. I understood that, you know, throwing everything at what I wanted to do and be was really, really important. But there was a way of doing it as well. You know, I'm really big on integrity and having just being really honest with people. And, and sometimes, I know that I can come back and bite you on the backside, but it allows me to look in the mirror every day and all that sometimes well you know if, I, if I've got this wrong because I've been too honest I can accept that I'm alright with it I said the other one already before it's what you do when nobody's watching and another one I came across and it's amazing where you get different quotes from Jake because do you remember when um, Falcao sat for United yeah. yeah so he was going through a really rough patch and we're going back to 2015 um, and I had a pretty rough patch in 2015. Uh, we won the treble that year and it was a wonderful season, but I found myself halfway through it and I was out the team, staring down the barrel of my final season of playing league, of being captain in my 13th year, and I can't get in a team. But Falcao was struggling at United, and I saw a quote his mum said, right, which is crazy, isn't it? But Falcao's mum said, through adversity comes blessings. And I'm not religious. But that's pretty much how my career has been, you know. Whenever I've been faced with a rough moment, a bad time, an injury, a poor performance, not being picked for a side, that's when it's really tested me and brought the best out of me. And it's certainly something that sticks with me every day now. Whenever it's going tough, and I know that there's going to be some good times. It might not be straight away, but if you work hard enough, I'll make it happen.
2: See, but as I'm hearing that, Kevin, I'm reminded of a conversation we had back in um, 2008 when we were in Australia. We were going to the the semi-final of the Rugby League World Cup and you'd been left out of the team. And I remember me and you talking and you had a lovely phrase that stuck with me that I still use today, where it's, good things happen for good people. And you had that optimism that things would turn, things would get better. As a child of two boys yourself, and there's a lot of people listening to this that'll be thinking about how they can relate your consistency of character to their own children. What kind of lessons do you pass on to them that try to instill that,
1: that same consistency in them? It's quite tough, that, because it, I think the best example of it is, is having the experience yourself. Uh, you're right, I can remember that like it was yesterday, being left out for that semi-final. My youngest, who you know would have been 10 months old, was in hospital with, with bronchitis. So there's a fair bit going on, and it hurts, doesn't it? It hurts when you get left out of a side, especially a game of that magnitude. Uh, it's for your country and it, it's tough. But I think, I do believe it. Good things happen to good people. I, I got an experience of being left out of a side when I was 19. Best thing that ever happened to me, I got left out of a cup final. So I got an understanding really early on how to deal with some of the things that happen in professional sport. And I was able to draw on that again in 2008. But it certainly is tough. I think as I got older, I got better at dealing with those difficult times and I understood that pulling the covers over and staying in bed because I didn't want to face it wasn't going to fix it you had to get up and face it no matter how much it hurt the irony in this the longer you leave it laying in that bed where you think it's going to help it makes it worse so you're better off getting yourself up and throwing yourself at it and going right well at some stage I've got to fix it so let's start fixing it now And, and understanding that those difficult times are really important and they get thrown at you from time to time to test you, that's life. So when I, when I look at my career, I certainly got better at dealing with it. I'm still not great at it, by the way. It still affects me and hurts me. But if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same, I, I know it's um, a phrase that means a lot to you, Damien, but uh, absolutely, as I, as I got older, I got so much better at dealing with that roller coaster and those highs and lows. I certainly became more balanced. And hopefully, through how I've behaved at home, and through the experiences, you know, my children have seen first down, they've understood that. Um, hopefully i will pass some of that on. How old are your children, Kevin?
0: Uh, 16 and 12. So if I went to them both and I said, tell me the most important message that your dad has ever given you or the biggest thing you've learned from your dad, what do you think
1: they'd say? It, it'd probably be something like, make sure you enjoy what you do. Then, well, they both play sport and ultimately we all have our own reasons of, of why. We should take part in sport. Why should we, team? we should be in team sport? The benefits I got from playing team sport were all about enjoyment. We're all about making friends and uh, building relationships and sharing in memories with a group. And that's certainly something i tried to pass on to them about enjoying the sport, enjoying what they do, especially if you're going to spend a lot, a large part of your life sitting with school. You know, you spend such a large chunk of your life at school. I know they're not at the minute, but you spend, you spend such a, a large time there you should try and find a way of enjoying it, whatever it is. Same with work. You've got to find something that that drives you, that gives you some enjoyment. It reminds me of the conversation we had with Johnny Wilkinson where he,
0: he spoke to us about being totally present in the moment, not worrying about yesterday, not worrying about tomorrow, which is an easy thing to say and quite a difficult thing to do. But it was only a, a couple of days after that when I was doing some work and it wouldn't be polite to say on here who I was working for and what I was doing. But I just didn't want to do it, right? And and actually, it was the conversation with Johnny Wilkinson where I thought to myself, right, I know for a fact that I am due to be here until 3.30. I am not leaving a minute before and probably not a minute after. So I can either choose to have this mindset of I don't really want to be here, the time's dragging on, I'll keep looking at my watch, I wish today wasn't happening, or I can totally invest in that moment. Stephen Gerrard told us all in, didn't he, on, on his podcast episode. Yeah. And, you know, Johnny Wilkinson spoke about being absolutely... Present in that moment, and I thought I'll just be totally present, I'll just talk to these people, find out about them, invest in what I'm doing in this moment. And actually, it totally changed the experience of what
1: in my head was going to be a pretty dull couple of hours. Yeah, that's great. I I think the big point there is you accepted it, you accepted it, Jake. And and I found that you know all the time. I recently did the seven in seven, and three days in, I'd had no sleep, and I was making a big deal about it, but actually, I just accepted this is going to be part of the challenge i'm not going to get any sleep all week so get your head around it and after that moment i actually started to sleep so a lot of it is about accepting it i reckon something you touched on there which you know we we all have the ability to choose and we all have it's linked closely with your attitude and how you go about your day-to-day stuff but we always have the ability to, to choose how we attack things how we go about things and we have to remind ourselves of that from time to time, especially during those those tough situations. and And there's something I use when I'm when I'm really struggling it, and I, and I call it. Everybody's got a pack of playing cards, and there's four aces in it. Well, I always think you've got an ace in your pocket, no matter what happens, and you can play that ace at any time. and And that ace you can give to people and basically attitude, care, and enjoyment. And if at any moment you're struggling a little bit, play that ace card. Remind yourself you have the choice. Remind yourself. You care about yourself and the people you're working with and put a smile on your face. And very, very quickly, you can turn it around.
3: Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door.
0: And I imagine the time you spent with Rob is, a, is an important reminder for um, for enjoying every moment and realising that you never know what's around the corner.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, um, you know, for a bloke at, at 37 year old who has had such a wonderful career, he's got a lovely family, who's had to fight the way he fought the whole, his whole career, because he's five foot four and in such a physical sport to be able to achieve what he did is remarkable. To be such a gentleman, to be such a nice lad, to be such a good friend, to have to face what he's facing is is not fair. So for us, for our group, for that team, for our club, to be able to show Rob the love, the care, the respect he deserves in such difficult times, if we can help him just a little bit throughout this, we'll do our absolute best to. See, there's a word you use there, Kev, that I just find
2: remarkable, that both as a male, but also within the sport that you operate in, which is the word love. And yet I feel that that contains so much stories, so much anecdotes, but so much meaning. Would you just tell us a bit about that?
1: Yeah, I think there's certainly different types of love out there. If we, we think about the friendships and the respect that this club has enabled us to have as people, Uh, for a period of time. I met Rob when I was 14, he was 12. We came through the, the ranks together, played 15 years professionally together, sat next to him every day in the dressing room, every single day, been on different tours with him, shared some key moments, both had kids at similar times, both got married at similar times. And that isn't just myself and Rob, you know, there's probably 10 other blokes in that dressing room we've gone through similar sort of things at, at, at this, a similar sort of time you know five or six of us came through together so within that there's there's just a natural bond you've shared so many good times but it's probably more the difficult times you shared that give you that bond and when I when I say love it I mean it from a absolute I do anything for him you know we all would and um, the care the respect we have for him and his family will never change and I suppose the club has helped us form those bonds and friendships and other and the things. When, when you look back on your career, the friendships and the memories are, are what's important to me now. That's what's so special about seeing Rob when I see him. So for you, and I, I, I want to come
2: back to the Rob um, relationship a little bit later, but I'm also interested that you're now a director of rugby. So you've experienced being part of a culture where those bonds bind you so tightly. How do you go about nurturing those bonds for that next generation that have to play now
1: yeah that's tough it's, and it's been a real balancing act because you absolutely want them all to feel it you do but you understand as well that time's moved on a little bit times have changed and you don't want to be that old pro that is constantly nagging the new players about what it were like in my generation what our group was like so it's a real balancing act, and I think how my role is here is, is probably different to, director of rugby in rugby union it can be in a different form. It can be a head coach, it can be somebody who's completely off field, it can be a combination of the two. Whereas in rugby league, it's quite a new role. We have a head coach who does all the coaching and does a brilliant job. We have a great coaching team. Um, he picks the team. But I oversee the whole rugby department, I oversee you know, every single element of it. So ensuring the work that goes on from a cultural and environment perspective is really important to me. I think there needs to be an element of tradition and the past within that, but also an understanding that people are different now. You know, social media has such a huge impact on our young players and how we embrace that and able to use the best of it to make sure that actually when these guys finish playing in 10, 15, 20 years' time, the memories and the friendships are the things that's important to them not the car they've got what big how, how big their house is those sort of things are, are really important for me I'm interested to talk just briefly about social media because I know that
0: you you don't have a social media presence really do you why is that? probably because I'm that stubborn
1: Jake <laughs> um <laughs> Um, I just made the decision, sort of, as it started to come out, and I was, I'd have been mid twenties, late twenties, and um, a lot of brands, especially when you know, you're looking for boot deals and bits and pieces. What's your media, social media presence? Well, I don't have one. I'm sure it went against me, but actually, I just didn't want any negative influence. Do you know, people I want to speak to, I've got the number, I know where they live, I could sit down and have a chat with them. Um, yes, I think it's really important to be able to speak to fans but i never felt rugby league went into a, a stratosphere where it stopped you talking to the bloke in the street rugby league's never been about that so i felt i didn't need it and and i also d- i didn't want to spend all my time on my phone i understood that criticism is part of the job and part of being involved in sport i get that but i don't want to open myself up to it any more than i have to you know don't be wrong we, we all want to be like don't we we all want to be liked. And- yeah, but the, I think the
0: problem with social media is it doesn't make you... Very, very few people on social media would say they feel loved because you can get 100 nice comments and the one bad comment is the one that impacts you. And that's something that obviously your young players are having to deal with because they're having to compare themselves with others. They're having to look at other people's seemingly perfect lives, which they aren't. They're basically comparing, which is what social media is, their real life, to the edited version
1: of someone else's life which it's difficult to argue that that's a healthy mindset isn't it yeah absolutely i think you're right but trying to convince them that when they've grown up with it and it's all they know you know, i feel very lucky that it's it's never been a part of my life i think it, it'd be i'd be really difficult for me now to give up my mobile phone you know i wouldn't want to go back to the old plug-in phone at home and you back to ringing landlines and so I suppose it's quite easy for me to say I've never experienced it. I think it's really hard to give give up things that you've got used to. But I've never got used to it. So, but it does have such an influence on players. Dressing rooms are so different now. You know, you walk into a dressing room and many of them are scrolling through the phone. And it's if you roll back ten or fifteen years you know, people had phones, people, yeah, people had, you know, the the big mobile phones back then, that Trigger Happy TV used to, uh, (laughs) Dom Jolly used to do, but they were in everybody's lockers, you know, and it was just banter and noise and laughter and dressing rooms are different now. So getting the balance right between banning phones and preventing people from spending all the time on social media, you know, I think we do pretty well as a club. We've got a great media manager who tries to educate the best he can and and get people to understand that actually for every good comment, there might be 10 bad ones and do you need it? I'm just in awe, Kev. You know that I think um, I love hearing somebody sort
2: of rail against um, the norms and going against it. And I think it, it comes back to that idea of it's entirely consistent with your character. Would you tell us then just about those marathons that you did? Because I know the cause that you were doing it was for Rob and to raise awareness for MND. But tell us what characteristics that you drew on to get you through the physical discomfort of doing seven back-to-back marathons, all of them, in under four hours.
1: Yeah, I've got to say to you, I absolutely loved it. It's the best thing I've ever done in my life. It's the thing I'm... Really? Besides having my kids, yeah, besides having my kids, it's the thing I'm most proud of. Because we threw it together in six weeks, we're in the middle of covid I, had to, I spent so much time dealing with my local MP, people in Leeds, and, and they were brilliant. You know Debbie Abrams in, in Oldham was fantastic. Tom O'Riordan, um was wonderful in Leeds. Um, Judith Blair was wonderful in Leeds. So trying to get clearance. And initially, we was going to come down from Scotland and get Big Doddy Weir to start us off. You know, Built a decent friendship up with Doddy now on the back of Rob, uh, which has been wonderful. And, and work our way down the country and... and sort of finish at Old Trafford which was quite poignant for us because it's, it's a place where Rob had played his last game it meant a lot to us we're going to run through Leeds run through Pontefract where Rob lives run through of my hometown that quickly got scrapped so we put it together in about six weeks having to jump through a lot of hoops and I've run marathons do you know I've, I've run a number it was, it was something I wanted to do when I finished playing I thought I'll try and run two a year for different charities and I've run a number for Prostate Cancer UK, Jen Tomlinson Appeal, I've run one at just before lockdown in 2020, March, I was supposed to be doing Manchester Marathon, that got canceled, so I thought, well, I've trained for it, I'm still gonna do it. I did it for Rob. So six weeks out, it was like, I wanna do something big for Rob. We're coming up to Christmas, I want him to be able to wake up Christmas morning and enjoy the kids opening, enjoy watching them open the presents. And and I put myself in his shoes, which I've done a number of times this year, and thought, you know, as a dad, as a family member, what would give me comfort? And, and absolutely knowing that everybody with financially secure was been a big driver for me and a number of other teammates. So we'd set a, a target figure in mind to raise for Rob and his family. We were short, and this is September, probably October time, mid-October. We were short. COVID had put a stop to a lot of the things we had planned. Jamie Peacock had done uh, an ultramarathon, Barry Mark and Keith Sr. had done you know, three peaks twice in 24 hours. And I thought, well, I need to do something um, at the minute. The best thing for me to do is run. But let's try and get near this magic number, which which we thought for Rob and his family. And we wrapped it around the sevens. 77,777 was the target. Seven marathons in seven days. And six weeks out, we announced it. And I'm staring down the barrel of, right, well, I'm run fit and I can run marathons, but I've never run back-to-back marathons. We wanted to put a time limit on it because we wanted people to take us seriously. We felt that, I've seen what Eddie Izzard's doing at the minute, 31 in 31 days, which is unbelievable, remarkable. Um, But we felt to get any traction, given the fact we were only doing seven, we had to put a time limit on it that made people sit up and go, yeah, this it's. Pretty impressive what those guys are doing. So we threw a team together. The hardest bit in all of it was uh, the training. So I'd, you know, I've, I've run, I'd run three marathons this year already. One for Rob, two just, you know, for my own well-being really, throughout lockdown and throughout different periods of the year. And a good mate of mine said, the best training you can do for a 10 in 10 is a three in three. Now bearing in mind I'm doing a seven in seven, I saw, sort of said to him, you're mad. There's not a chance I'm doing a 3 and three. three days later, I started off on a 3 and 3 and um, that was the hardest thing I'd ever done, including 7 and 7 I got on day two. It'd be about an hour an hour into day two. We're in deepest, darkest all of them. It raining, it's like horrendous, windy, and those questions that everybody asks themselves, what on earth are you doing? What are you doing here? Think about what, what you're attempting, you're crazy. So how did you get through that, Kev? Because that really does intrigue me. Uh, well, it, it's funny you ask this because it didn't last long. It didn't last long. It, 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 I had a mate who ran uh, day two with me. And we got to this and I had a mate on his, on me, on his bike as well, who Daryl, who, who came with me for, for all seven. And I'm like, will you shoot me? I've had enough. I just want to go home. And we came to a hill. No word of a lie. We came to a hill and, and I said to my mate, just get behind me here. Get me slipstream. I'll get you up here. I found another gear, blasted to the top, and I were fixed. I were like, we'll just get this done today. And as soon as I get today done, I've done two, and I'm going to do tomorrow no matter what because I'm going to prove that I can do three and three. The minute I'd done three and three, I knew we'd do it. I knew we'd do seven. I knew I'd get them all under four hours. Tell me how you reacted to the amazing response
0: of the media and the public, because from this conversation we've had, if I was to sum it up, I would say that you're someone who has spent his life earning respect not earning attention you only do things for the right reasons yet you're the one on the front pages of the papers not the other people you've mentioned who've also done amazing things for rob and it wasn't even rob on the front pages it was kevin put on this pedestal for this amazing achievement did that sit comfortably
1: and easy with you at times no i, th- I think you'll hear me refer to the tea all the time because i wouldn't have done it without them they were brilliant and it was a, it absolutely was a team effort. I mentioned Phil, our media manager earlier, and without Phil driving it like he did from a press point of view, without him putting together the little snippets each day, without him organising the BBC interviews and and all the different radio interviews, we did the ITV turn up Sky Sports News, we just wouldn't have had the cut through, we wouldn't have had the support. I think timing was really important as well. Um, The grand final just finished that weekend when we started you're back in deepest darkest Covid, you're on the run up to Christmas, people feel a little bit more generous. We couldn't have done it at a more perfect time, the support was incredible and, and you're right, you know there were different times in the marathons, on every day I broke down and was teary and choked up and I didn't have a clue why, I just did and, and I think the support we got absolutely fueled each run, you know day seven was easy. And I don't say that with any arrogance at all. I just knew we'd do it. I ran past my old school, my old high school, Saddleworth, and the, we hit a million pound as soon as I stood outside it. There were a couple of moments where you've gone, we we ran past Rob on day five. He just had this mural put up in Leeds. The minute, the second I ran past Rob at this mural, we hit half a million. So everything we're telling me, just keep going here, just keep doing what you're doing because, there was a wave of support from everybody, but the MND community were just for all of us. We were bowled over. we were overwhelmed, and didn't you know, I thought about it since? Because you do hit a bit of a lull afterwards because you've been on such a high, and I had no sleep. I had no sleep throughout it. Um, it was on such a high that did I I'd do it again tomorrow? And I don't think there's a better feeling than than giving people hope and know that you've you've made a difference. Might, only a small difference, you know, but we're two point seven million more of a different symbol would have been if we'd not done it and if you'd have said to me today would you have been happy in your initial target I'd have snapped your hand off
0: what an amazing story Um, look we have a lot of people that listen to this podcast Kevin and they will be in awe of the fact that at a young age you were single minded and you were determined and you took that into your career and you carried people with you and you lifted others up Um, and that's probably a big takeaway from this is that from a young age you realise that maybe your superpower is raising those others up around you what would you say though to people who really want something but they struggle to know what it is they want to be successful they want to have an impact but they don't know where to turn or even the people who know what they want they're putting the effort in and they're not getting the rewards back and it can feel difficult sometimes
1: um, Yeah, do you know, I feel a little bit like that myself now you know, i will finished playing and, and you start a new role I've studied throughout my career and there's nothing quite gives you the satisfaction that, that playing gave me, it's, it's different. So trying to find ways of being able to feel good about yourself, trying to find ways to give you the moment of Andy difference on the roof in Shawshank when he feels free and he's had, his mates have had a couple of beers, trying to find those moments are really difficult. They're really difficult. and And I, and I think what distorts people's views are how everybody's putting the lag We mentioned social media before. Everybody's telling you how well they're doing, how good the life is, all on social media. But you won't pick that a little bit, and you understand that actually. Do you know at times you have to struggle a little bit? You have to go through some rough, rough times. You have to persevere with getting where you, where you'd like to be. Now, some people don't know where that is. I understand that, but set off somewhere. Don't stand still. Set off in a direction. Set off with some integrity and some honesty. And you'll find some answers. You'll get there. You'll get where you need to be. And if you don't, change path. Can we go
0: on to our quickfire questions, please? I can see actually behind you the Leeds Rhinos DNA is on the wall. So I wonder how many of these will slip into the Leeds Rhinos DNA. The three non-negotiables that people around you must buy into.
1: Uh, team first. Work hard. And have humility. What advice would you give to a young Kevin just starting home? enjoy the good moments for a little bit longer. Do you think that you could have been as successful if you'd done that, though? I'd like to think yes. Probably a balance of, we've all seen cool runnings, instead of being Doris in the bath, practising the moves the night before, I'd have liked to have had a little bit more of Sanka in me. But perhaps, yeah, perhaps you're right, Jake. Perhaps that wouldn't have allowed me to be who I am and what I am. Perhaps it would have been a very, very different outcome. I probably needed to be this way but I would have loved I'd have loved to have been able to stay in the moment just for another couple of minutes after a big trophy win on one of those bus trips back being in the dressing room just another couple of minutes before you quickly transform back into the robot that needs to answer the media questions and say the right thing just but you can't have everything can you don't forget you
0: might look back in twenty years on what you're doing today and wish you'd been in the moment a little bit more. So there's there is still the chance to be in the moment, you know?
1: Yeah, I I I certainly think I've got better at it. Um I, you know, I mentioned the seven in seven early and we we talked through it a little bit. I think that's why I enjoyed it so much because I allowed myself to to really enjoy it and and I tell you a little story. We were day three. I'd had no sleep. We set off on, on the marathon and I ran angry. And I've got two mates who, who set out to run with me. One of them got injured two weeks before, but I've got a good mate of mine. It's his fault I started marathon running in the first place. And I had a plan every day to set off hard for the first hour and then pull back knowing that I had time in the bank. And I set off running, I was angry, and I just kept my foot down. And I kept my foot down and I kept my foot down. And I finished the marathon and it was the day we did the quickest time. It's 3.34 and I come in and I'm like, well that's brilliant but how selfish am i because this is about a team and and i've got it wrong today so i slept on it or tried to sleep on it following morning pulled the group together and i said apologize i've got it wrong we've got to stick together on this next one i'm sorry i forgot what this was all about i've run angry i'm tired but absolutely we do it together we complete it together and i think taking that competitiveness away really really helped me and now i won't Competing with the guy we're running with at all. I weren't I was competing with myself, but but it weren't about that It were about getting it done and doing it for me mate and and for us all to do something We were proud of together. So we had those memories and friendships again that I've touched upon So they'd stay with us forever and I'm not ashamed or embarrassed to say I got day three wrong But day four was much better and you know It allowed me to enjoy it allowed me to relax and enjoy knowing full well that I'd get the times but I wanted us to do it together. How important is legacy to you? It's not something I think about. Not something I think about at all. I think what people think about me, of course it's important, you know, it's important to me, but it's which people we're talking about. Those who are close to me, my family, my wife, my kids, my mum and dad, my teammates that I've played alongside, you know, my best mates, the people that opinions matter. And I'd like people to say nice things about me, we all would, but I won't lose any sleep over it. I might lose sleep over trying to do seven marathons in seven days, but I won't lose any sleep over someone having a crack or being critical. I can't help that, I can't change it. So what's your one golden rule for living a high performance life? I'd I'd probably stick to that phrase I used at the start, Damien, uh, to be a champion, you've got to be a champion at home first. That's the bit I live my life by. If you want longevity in your career, you've got to be a good bloke, you've got to be a good person. It's been so nice to sit and chat for
0: an hour, Kevin. Um, You know, I was thinking while you were talking, there are so many podcasts these days and a lot of them are about people trying to sort of share um, information about how to live a great life. And I think some of them, a lot of it is for show. And yet when I sit and I hear you talk, it just makes me realise that maybe I think your superpower is that every single thing you say and everything you do is absolutely real. You can back it up with complete belief that you're you're saying and doing what you really honestly feel rather than sometimes the things that are making you look good or making you feel good, you know?
1: Oh, well, thank you. Um, You two have been so kind. Um, I've loved being on here with you. You're doing a wonderful job and uh, you kept me going through lockdown, so thank you.
0: Brilliant. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to sit and chat. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Damien. Jake. Having um, known about Kevin Sinfield, but not knowing him at all, I loved that conversation because, like I said to him, I feel that we live in a world now, particularly with social media, right, where we're bombarded with style over substance. People saying things that they've read on other people's walls or quoting quotes that they don't really live by or they don't believe in, but they put it up and they say it in a really brash manner and then it has more of an impact with people. Every single thing he said was said for the total opposite of wanting to show off and wanting to be brash. It was just about, he's totally connected to what he truly is,
2: isn't he? Definitely. You used a lovely phrase during the interview, Jake, that that really resonated with me uh, around Kevin, where actions speak far louder than words. And I think he's a good man who does lots of good work in the shadows. He's not looking for the attention. He's just looking to do the right thing every time. Uh, and as long as he looks at himself in the mirror At the end of the day Knowing that he's squeezed everything out of him he's, he's acted with integrity I mean that was a word that he used a number of times In our conversation And he's a man of real integrity Not looking for likes He's 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 looking to like himself
0: And I love his phrase That he, that he lives by Through adversity comes blessings I mean that's a powerful one
2: Yeah, it's brilliant, isn't it? Yeah. But I love the fact that listen to where he learnt it from, you know, something as random as Ramadale Falcao's mum. And I think that tells you something that this is a man constantly open to new ideas, open into ways of improvement, open to ways of getting better. You know, I know that he was listening to uh, the first couple of series that we've done while he was on his training runs, you know, and I think that isn't to pat ourselves on the back it's to give an indication that he's a man that's reached the summit of his own sport but he's still looking to how can he improve how can he get better and
0: that the fact that that quote came from Falcao's mum and it's Kevin Sinfield's number one quote that actually means a lot to me because you know I live in a world where when you used to be on kids telly and now you talk about football you just live in a world on social media where you're constantly told oh you know nothing about football why would we listen to you what I love about that from him is that don't base the way you live your life or how you think about stuff on where it's come from and your opinion of that person and pigeonholing people and putting them in a bracket that they can't inspire you or whatever. You can literally get inspiration from anyone and anything. And if it speaks to you, then just let it be.
2: Exactly. And I think that taps into the fundamental difference between skepticism and cynicism: cynicism just basically assumes that everything is wrong and that it's a waste of time. Skepticism questions it, but looks for the value in it. And I think if you're open-minded, you know you can be you can be open-minded, but come at it with a degree of how can I use this? Does this work for me? And I think that's a trait of a lot of the high performers that we've seen. They're they're healthily skeptical rather than unhealthily cynical.
0: Love it. He was an understated overachiever and they are the best types.
2: Yeah, exactly. I've, I've come away from it feeling better about myself and the world. And I think the effect that he had when he was an 11-year-old lad looking to make his mark at Lancashire Schoolboys of trying to make people better. Both of us have walked away from it feeling better for having been there. So that integrity piece is running through him still now. Oh, what a great episode. I love that
0: conversation, Damien, because he's such a down-to-earth bloke, isn't he, Kevin? Um, And probably doesn't actually realise the impact he's made, not just in people's lives in his playing career, but also in what he did recently with that incredible charity effort.
2: Yeah, I think that's the key to Kevin's success is just how down-to-earth he is. I think that he doesn't get carried away with great triumphs like he didn't get carried away with some of... His biggest setbacks either is just consistent and authentic is the word that I'd uh, always associate with him.
0: And people who are listening to this pod and haven't seen any videos from it, I would encourage them actually just to go and have a look on YouTube where we put all of the interviews or across our social media channels because I like the fact he was talking to us at work and behind him was sort of all of the like rules for how we're going to operate in this workplace. And it's, it's clear that he's not just sitting and talking to us about his high performance values. It's clear that he lives them all the time.
2: Yeah, definitely. I think I was talking to a friend of his uh, yesterday, a guy called Gareth Ellis, uh, that I'd played with Kevin for years. And uh, he told me a great anecdote about him. He said, in the four years I played with Kevin, I don't think we ever had a crossword with each other because I always felt he cared about me. And because of that, I never wanted to let him down. And I think that's that's testimony to the character of him.
0: Amazing guy. What a what a special bloke. And actually, it's it's incredible to see the podcast m- work in its way through the sporting circles. You know, Sam Billings, the cricketer. Hi, Sam. Rugby player, Reese Webb. George Long, the footballer. Rachel Daly as well. And, you know, model and filmmaker Mariah Idrissi have all reached out to us this week, Damien, to say they're enjoying the podcast. And I'm not sort of saying that people who operate in a high performance environment or professional sports people matter more to us than anyone that listens to the pod. But I think that it, It does validate something for me in that if those people are saying they're learning something from it and they're in that high performance world, I genuinely think this is a pod that can help everyone and anyone.
2: Yeah. I think when you go into sort of sporting environments, they can be quite cynical places in terms of anything new or different. They will quickly sniff out whether they feel it's authentic or not. So like you say, the fact that people are coming and saying that they're getting value from it indicates that, the truth of what our guests are sharing with us is something really quite profound. And that then means that anyone can apply it within their world, whether you know, this is something that we frequently say that we don't speak to sports people, we speak to people that work in sport, just as we might speak to people that work in schools, in teachers, or people that work in offices in marketing and things like that. It's the people element that's consistent in these interviews.
0: Well, let's talk about some of the feedback we've had. There's a there's a lovely um review that was left on uh, apple podcasts and please wherever you get your podcasts if you can rate and review the pod it's so good for us it really does help us we love giving you this content for free but if you can just give us a review or a rating um i think that's a that's a good exchange right um the message here says, I've been listening to this podcast since it first came out. And on reflection, I can't quite believe the effect it's had on my mindset, outlook, and behavior. I now read more than I used to. I find myself to be more motivated to take control of the controllables in my life, and I'm generally a happier person. This has stemmed from the High Performance Podcast. With each new guest comes several new nuggets of gold that challenge me to think about how I can be a better student, brother, son, boyfriend, colleague, human being. Where the High Performance Podcast excels is in its diversity of guests, the athletes, visionaries, entrepreneurs, and artists that feature each week. Illustrate there isn't really a right way towards success and instead show that success comes from finding your own values and sticking to them. I want to put this to Jake and Damien. It can be quite intimidating, not 100% agreeing with someone that's won a rugby world cup or an actor that's made millions of dollars so what's your advice for dealing with this and that is a really good point because I can totally understand what he means when when someone says something on the podcast Damien that I don't agree with I find myself not wanting to disagree with them because they've they've had such a great life and achieved so many things and but we still I think This podcast only works if we apply it to our own lives and our own thinking, and that includes disagreeing. Definitely.
2: I sent you that quote earlier this week uh, that I was reading about that really captured it, where it said, opinion is the lowest form of knowledge because it doesn't require any investment in or, or any empathy or understanding of somebody else. Whereas empathy is the highest form of knowledge because it involves stepping into somebody's world, leaving your own ego behind and trying to understand their decisions. And I think anyone that's listening to this, I'd encourage them to say that we're not trying to give you an answer of what is the right way. There's no formula for it. It's about stepping into somebody's world and seeing what was the way that was right for them and what are the lessons that maybe we can take away and apply ourselves.
0: It's great. Um, listen, thank you so much for your time, Damien. As always, this podcast wouldn't be the podcast it is without your without your input. Um, thank you as well to the people that have got in touch with us this week. It's been another remarkable week. Hundreds of thousands of people listening to this podcast right across the planet. So I just actually would like to say a big thanks to everyone listening to us globally as well. Obviously, we live in the UK. We record in the UK. We're based in the UK. But to have people in Africa and Australia and America and Europe you know, sending us messages every single day, telling us that in their lives, thousands of miles away, they're using the High Performance Podcast is incredible for us. Thanks to all the people for working hard on the podcast, to Hannah, to Will, to Finn Ryan from Rethink Audio, to Damien, of course. But most of all, thanks to you for not just listening to the pod, but sharing the podcast. For people to listen to this and then pop onto their Instagram or their Twitter and share not just the fact they've listened to it, but why it's helped them makes the world of difference to this podcast, reaching new places and new people. So thank you so much for sharing. Check us out on YouTube. Check us out on Instagram. Keep on coming back for more because we genuinely are only here for good reasons to help you live a high performance life. Have a great day.